There is nothing like being in yeshiva when you're fully engrossed in learning. I can't say it always happened, but I remember very clearly when I was a young man, maybe in my 20s, I was learning in Rochester, New York, in yeshiva, and it was bitter, bitter cold. And I only appreciated how cold it was when at some point in the middle of the winter I realized that I hadn't left the building for three weeks. But I wasn't cooped up. I didn't feel enclosed and entrapped. Quite the opposite. Everything was there. The base medrash, the cafeteria was downstairs, my dorm room was upstairs. Everything I possibly could need was there. And it was a beautiful cocoon. It was a beautiful experience. Again, it doesn't last forever because learning full-time, completely engrossed, totally enveloped in learning isn't so simple. But the bottom line is when a person is completely in learning, there's nothing more beautiful. And that was the experience of the Jewish people for many, many years in the Midbar, in the desert. As a nation, we had stood at the foot of our Sinai, had heard directly from Hashem Anochi, Hashem Lekecha, and then within the framework of this desert, we as a people were completely enveloped in learning and only involved in learning. All of our needs were taken care of. The Anneh covered the clouds of glory, daily would come and wash the clothing, would prepare the road when they did have to travel. It was air-cooled, air-conditioned. The mun was the most delicious food imaginable. It tasted like whatever you wanted it to taste like, delivered right to your doorstep. This large, huge rock, the Be'er, would follow them from place to place and would gush forth millions and millions of gallons a day. And as a whole, as an entity, the Jewish nation were on a level of spiritual greatness that was unparalleled. Historically, it hadn't happened before, nor has happened since. What they were steeped in all day was learning. They had the greatest Rebbe, Moshe Rabbeinu, and they had a life that was beautiful. And all of that was to change. In year 38, when we're already getting close to conquering Eretzisol, going into Eretzisol, at a certain point it's time to cross through Edom, and Edom sends out a message, no, you will not cross our lands, even though we had no beef with Edom, and we would have crossed through without touching anything of theirs, they said, we will not let you through, we'll come out against you in war, and the entire Jewish nation, instead of heading straight through, had to head around. Very shortly thereafter, Aaron Akoin dies. And then the Pusik says that the Katzer Nefesh Am Bederach, the nation's Nefesh became shortened, became short. And it's very hard to understand. And Rashi explains what it means. He said, right after Aaron Akoin died, the Jewish nation made seven more stops. But those seven stops were backwards. They went back to places they had been before. You see, instead of going straight through Edom, which should have happened, they had to trace around. And to do that, they went back seven stops that had been there before, and that caused a tremendous loss of hope. Because the people said to themselves, wait a minute, we've been here before. We passed through here. And in the next stop, we've been here. And the one after, wait, we're supposed to go right into Israel. What's going on? And at that moment, they said to themselves, our fathers have been in this desert for 38 years. Obviously, we're not going right into Israel. Who knows how long we're going to be here? They lost hope. They lost hope of going into Israel quickly. They assumed who knows how long it will be. And Rashi explains they became overwhelmed by the hardship of the journey. But the Katzer Nefesh Am, their Nefesh became short. They were so overwhelmed, the pain was too great for them to bear. And that changed everything. Because very shortly thereafter, that beautiful living that they had been existing in, that beautiful Gan Eden turned into a prison cell. The Midbar closed in on them. The food that they were given daily for years now tasted disgusting to them. The rock that delivered the water was just another encumbrance and other burden and the nafshenu kotza belechem kel 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 they went complaining 
the nation spoke to Hashem and to Moshe saying, why did you take us out of Mitzrayim? Why did you bring us to this Midbar? There's no, there's no food, there's no water. All we have is this lechem akilokel, this corrupt bread. Nafshenu Katsa, we're disgusted by this lechem akilokel. And they called the Mun this corrupt, disgusting sort of entity. Now just to put this into perspective, the Gemara tells us that the Mun was the most unique type of food imaginable, completely assimilated into the body. It was a big tircha to have to go to the bathroom in the Midbar would have been a problem. Why? Because it was all Kaddush. It was all holy. You can't defecate in a place of Kedusha. And if a person needed the facilities, he had to walk all the way outside the camp. A great distance. It would have taken him a long time to get there. And therefore Hashem did a special favor for the Jewish people. Instead of the food being partially assimilated and part being excreted, the mun was completely absorbed into the body, no need to go to the bathroom. The mun had the most unique flavor about it. The Gemara says if you take the sweetest honey, it's one-sixtieth of the deliciousness of the taste of mun, the most unique, perfect food. And they said about it, lechem akilokel, that disgusting bread, we're abhor- it's abhorrent to us, we're disgusted by it. And I believe if we take nothing else from this Rashi, just one yesod, the power of hope and the destructiveness when a person loses hope. Meaning to say they had everything. The Midbar was the most beautiful existence. Hashem's presence was right there. They could experience Hashem. They were learning. They were growing. They were reaching stellar heights. All of their needs provided in the most miraculous way. Their shoes never wore out. For 38 years they were walking on their shoes and it still remains. Their garments didn't become worn. They lived amongst miracle after miracle, and it was an extraordinarily beautiful life until they lost hope. And once they said, oh my goodness, we're not heading into Eretzrol. Our fathers were 38 years in the Midbar, who knows how long we'll be here. They lost hope, and that losing hope turned everything around. The beautiful Gan Eden became a Gehenim. Physically, nothing changed. The taste of the month didn't change but it sure did change in their mind, in their understanding, and in their reality. And again, if we take nothing else from this Rashi, just the single understanding of how significant hope is, how important hope is, and then if a person loses hope, it's very, very questionable where they're going to end up. And I believe that that concept, even if we just stop there, has a tremendous amount of relevance to us. You see, we human beings trust We trust in many, many things. If you've ever gone on the U.S. highway system, you might notice that there are quite a bit of accidents. As a matter of fact, there are about 40,000 fatalities a year. 40,000 people a year lose their lives on the U.S. highway system. Why is it that when I feel the dread, oh my goodness, do you understand the danger? Far greater than being in a war zone in Vietnam. The answer is I trust. We trust in law and order. We trust in the normality of things. We trust in government. We trust that when we get into our car, we'll arrive safely, well. And it doesn't matter because even if something does happen, there are always safety nets. The EMT is a very efficient system. There are hospitals. And we trust in many, many things. We trust in the U.S. government. We trust in the U.S. economy. We trust in banks. We put our money in the bank. And we fully trust that tomorrow when I go to take out my money, the bank will still be there. But a very interesting thing happened to people in the 1929, the Great Depression. And if you see pictures of people jumping out of windows of high buildings, you have to ask yourself why. Imagine you had a stockbroker, an investor, a very wealthy man, and the market crashed. Okay, you lost a lot of money. Okay, but what are you jumping out of the window? What are you killing yourself for? And the answer is because it wasn't just that they lost money. It wasn't that they went from wealth to poverty. That which I trusted in, the U.S. economy, the almighty dollar, vaporizes in front of my very nose. The banks fail. How could that be? When a person trusts in something and it's suddenly pulled away, they feel themselves in a free fall. Who knows what else? Because that was solid. That was real. That was such a part of life, and now it's gone. 
And the Chovah Zavavah explains to us that anything that a person trusts in other than Hashem eventually will fail him. Right now I'm young and healthy. Guaranteed you won't be forever. I trust in my acumen, my wealth. Whatever a person trusts in other than Hashem at some point will fail him. And we have to recognize that. We have to understand that so that we can switch our trust from things that don't warrant our trust to the only thing that does warrant our trust, namely our Creator. But you see, if you'd like to know a not lishma, sort of a side benefit of learning to trust in Hashem, there will come a time when whatever you trusted in other than Hashem will fail you. And there will be a pervasive sense of hopelessness. You'll be helpless, you'll be hopeless. Because when you trust in your health and suddenly the doctor says, Son, I got some bad news for you. And there is no cure. That which you trusted in, which was so rock solid that I'll live forever. I'll always be here. I'll always be young and healthy. Suddenly vaporizes and you find yourself without any support. And that feeling of hopelessness and that feeling of helplessness is catastrophic and can destroy so much. And again, this is a side benefit of training ourselves to trust in Hashem, because again, Hashem only is the one that's worthy of trust. And this concept of learning to trust Hashem is basic, basic to our religion, basic certainly to happiness, basic to everything we do. And again, I think from this example of this Rashi, we see how far this sense of hope is imperative to a person's simcha sachayim, how important it is to always have hope. And again, the only thing a person can ever really trust in, ever really have hope in, is Hashem and anything else will fail him. So again, that itself is a significant lesson. But I believe that there's a much bigger lesson for us to learn from this very Rashi. And let's focus on one simple observation. The Jewish people had it better than ever before in history. Every need taken care of. They didn't have to work. They didn't have to worry. There was nothing And they were completely involved in spirituality and growth. And it was great. Life was so beautiful. And it changed. But it doesn't make sense. I get it. They lost hope. I get it. They should be down. They should be maybe depressed. They should be, what do you mean now the bread I eat doesn't taste delicious? It's mun. It's miraculous. It comes down from Shemaim. I get it. And more than that, my entire life, that's all I've eaten. Rashi explains to us that this generation was the generation that were going to enter Eretz Yisrael. Anybody who had left Mitzrayim over 20 years of age died in the Midbar. Anyone actually entering Eretz Yisrael was born in the Midbar or grew up in the Midbar. Because anyone over 20, if they left Mitzrayim, died. That means these people either spent most of their life or all of their life in this cocoon, in this beautiful environment learning and growing and enjoying. So how is it possible that all of a sudden this beautiful life, all that they've ever experienced, turns ugly, black, and bleak? How could their bread no longer taste sweet? It's all they ever tasted. It's all they ever had. How could it suddenly change dramatically? What's shot in this Rashi? And what's shot in Sukkim over here? And to understand this, I'd like to focus on a very interesting phenomenon within the human being. I once was speaking to a fellow who had recently become a Baal and he had told me that he spent a lot of time in college grappling with the following question. The question was, why have children? But not why have children, because, you know, if I have kids, I can't spend money on me, I have to worry about them. No, no, much deeper than that. Why have children when it's so mean. Yes, I benefit because I have a kid, but why take an innocent baby and put him into this world? There's so much pain, there's so much suffering. Why do it to a child? For your own selfish ego needs, you're going to expose a child to this world that we live in, the ugliness, the pain, why do it? And he said he went around asking everyone he knew to answer this question. He was on college campus, He asked every professor, every learned person, every older person, and everyone he asked could not answer the question. You're right. It's a good question. So let's ask ourselves this question. Why do it? Why do that to an innocent baby? It's not nice. So 
I'd like to share with you the answer to that question. But before I share with you the right answer, let me share with you the wrong answer. The wrong answer to that question is, you're right, life is tough. Life is very bleak and dark, but it's worth it for the world to come. Meaning you'll bring this baby into the world, and the baby will suffer his 70 years here, but when he's done, for eternity he'll be able to enjoy what he accomplished. For eternity he'll have tremendous pleasure, he'll be close to Hashem. So yes, he'll suffer here, but it's worth it for his place in the world to come. Now that's 100% true. It's 100% accurate, but it's the wrong answer to the question. Would you like to know the right answer to the question? The right answer to the question is, you don't understand life. If you understood life, you would understand, yes, there are rough spots, and yes, there's pain and suffering, but life itself is beautiful. And a child brought up right should love life, should enjoy life. Does that mean the child won't shin his knees? Does it mean they won't fall and hurt himself? No, it doesn't. Life has its bumps. People have bruises. That's part of life. But the climate of a person's life is supposed to be beautiful, enjoyable, and it's not supposed to be a life of suffering, bleak, yuch. And the correct answer to the question is, if you ask the question, you don't understand life. So here's the question. Why is it this young man went to all the college professors he could buttonhole and ask, went to many, many adults, why is it that he went throughout everyone he came into contact with and couldn't get the obvious answer to this question? And I'll share with you what I believe the answer to that question is. The answer to that question really is quite simple. You see, if there is no world to come, then there's no purpose in life. And let's imagine for a moment that life ends in the grave. Let's imagine that when they put my body in there, it's black and just like Elsie the cow, you know, her nephesh just evaporates. Imagine when I hit the grave, my body gets covered up and I am no longer. In that scenario, if that were true, then the question that young man asked is 100% legitimate. Because, ugh, life is meaningless. Life is purposeless. Why go through it? Why go through the pain and the torture and the trouble and the worries? And ugh, it's just not worth it. But it's not just that it's not worth it. Life itself is empty, vacuous, meaningless, and it stinks. It really isn't any fun. But you see, once you understand life, And once you have a plan, a purpose, once you understand there's a mission, your whole life is changed. Your emotional state is vastly different. There's a simcha sachayim, a joy in your bones, a joy in your heart because you understand life. And then suddenly life is very different. Suddenly there are sunrises, suddenly there is poetry, suddenly there are flowers, suddenly it's a beautiful world. But if life fundamentally doesn't make sense, then you're right. It's bleak, it's black, it's ugh, ugh, it just doesn't make sense. And I have a piece of advice. I've said this before and I've gotten in trouble for it, but I'll say it again. If you sincerely believe that there's no world to come, I have a piece of advice for you. Go to a very tall building and jump. Because why do it? Why go through it? It's meaningless. It's pointless. In the core of your essence is an absence, is a vacuum anyway, and you're right, life stinks. Go find the Brooklyn Bridge and end it. And the reason why this young man could not find an answer to that question is because if you lead life without purpose, without meaning, if you don't understand why Hashem put you here, you will have an emptiness inside and all of the beauty in the world just doesn't register. I'm not happy, I'm not fulfilled. My life stinks. So what does it all mean? A flower, stupid flower. Sunrise, who cares? Mount Everest, stupid thing. Everything, it's all bleak, black, yuck. Get me, get me out of here. And astonishingly, so many people walk around with exactly that sort of mode of feeling. And it's not the way it's supposed to be, not the way Hashem intended to be. The first thing that a person has to really, really come to grips with if they want to lead a meaningful, significant life. If they really want to be happy, they have to focus on why did Hashem create me? What am I doing here? And when you begin growing and changing and using your life as you're supposed to, suddenly there's a harmony within you. There's a peace. There's a happiness. 
And suddenly the world turns from black and white to technicolor. It turns from a bleak, austere, ugly world to a beautiful world. Does that mean everything's going to be great? No, you're still going to have trouble. You still may have aches in your bones, in your stomach, and you're still going to have stuff going on in your life because that's part of life. But life itself is beautiful. And this, I believe, is the very first thing a person needs to be happy. A simcha sachayim, a joy of life based on an inner peace and inner harmony. And that can only be attained when you come to grips with why you're here and you lead a life in sync with that purpose. However, even if you've done this, and even if you're really attuned to this, and even if you're leading a life of growth and accomplishment, believe it or not, you could still be depressed. And I'd like to share with you why. There is a book that was written, was published first in 1980, written by Dr. David Burns. It's called Feeling Good. And it's one of the most influential, seminal books, maybe written in the past 50 years, maybe the past 100 years. Dr. Burns introduced to modern man a concept called cognitive therapy. And basically, his concept was that much of a person's moods are directly affected by his thinking. Now, until this time, it might have been known by a few, certainly by Chazal, who were told it over and over and over, but Western man, by and large, was clueless to this, and he popularized this concept, and from that time on, the book has sold millions of copies, and many, many tens of thousands of people have been greatly affected by it, And in a very real sense, psychology in general has come around to these thoughts, to this thinking. And let me share with you basically what he says in a nutshell. There are three principles that he bases his work on, feeling good. And he says, number one, what you feel is based on what your thoughts are. Your cognitions, your perceptions, your understanding greatly affect your feeling. Let me give you an example. Imagine that I give you a present. Imagine we know each other very well, we've known each other many years, and we're good friends, and I show up with a box, and I say, you know, I I can't begin to repay you for everything you've done for me, I got you this present. And you open it up, and you see 10 sparkling, brilliant diamonds. Oh my goodness, oh my god, that's incredible, wow, that's incredible. Right at that moment, what are you feeling? Elation, joy, extra. I mean, it's incredible. That's that's amazing. But what if when you took the box from me, you weren't so sure? And the minute you opened it up, you said, oh, that charlatan, that faker, Schaefer. Cubic zirconium, they're fake, they're not real. The guy's just trying to dupe me, trying to fool me. What would have your feelings been then? Obviously, pretty sour and pretty unhappy. You see, your perception, your understanding directly affects your feelings. Feelings are shaped by the way you view things, the way you understand things, the way you look at the world. There's no objective reality. There's reality as you see it, as you perceive it. And the first principle that... This book, Feeling Good, presents to the world is the idea that depression is largely based on your thoughts, on your thinking that causes the problem. And the second principle that he puts out is that most depressed people have pervasive negative thoughts. Most people who are depressed have a thought process that goes through their brain that's pervasively negative, it's bad, it's ugly, it's no good, it's not good. They live in a world of dark, gloomy thoughts, things are bad, I'm bad, people are bad, everything's bad. And because they live in a world of negative thinking, hence their moods become very negative. Because the more you see things as ugly and bad, and I'm bad, and you're bad, and the world's bad, and everything's bad, the more you perceive the world that way, Obviously, the more you're going to feel that way, and the more you feel that way, the more down you're going to be, the more ugh, and you're going to have a sense of ugh. And the second principle is that most depressed people have pervasive negative thoughts. But there's a third principle, which is very eye-opening. The third principle is that almost every depressed person 
is subject to twisted thinking. Almost every depressed person has thought processes that are grossly distorted. To them, it seems real, it seems valid, but to a jury of their peer, it would immediately be just plain wrong. And if you have a tendency towards depression, all you have to do is follow your thought processes and you'll quickly see that your thinking is pervasively negative and it becomes twisted in a very negative way. I'm bad, everyone's bad, nothing's good. And even if you're a stellar champion, you feel bad about it, you have very difficult times ever acknowledging it, and there's a tremendous amount of twisted thinking that anyone else in your world would immediately tell you is wrong, but you don't see it that way. And because you don't see it that way, the world to you seems very ugly, very distortedly gross and yuck. Hence, you walk around with a heavy burden because all day long your mind is playing this tape. Life stinks. I stink. Everything's bad. The world is worthless. I hate it. And all you have to do is read some of the writings of depressed people. All you have to do is speak to people who are depressed. And you hear exactly what he's saying. Pervasive negative thoughts, distorted thoughts that shape their world. And it's no chiddish that they're depressed because the way we think is the way we feel. Now, it needed modern man, I guess, some 2,000 years or more to figure out this concept. But this is something that we're told over and over by Chazal. And I believe that's the answer to this Rashi. You know what happened to the Dordea? As soon as they saw that they weren't going into Eretz as soon as they saw that they took one step back, a second and a third and a seventh step, they lost hope. And once they lost hope, they had this pervasive negative thinking. They started looking at the world as a very bleak, black, hopeless place. They were helpless. They were hopeless. And so that beautiful midbar that they had been leading a life in now turned into a prison cell. The delicious food they ate tasted disgusting. The water that was miraculously delivered to them was ugh. And their whole world was changed because their perceptions changed. And once their perceptions changed, their feelings changed. Once their feelings changed, the place stinks. And it's horrible and it's disgusting. And I believe that there are two major, major fundamental concepts that we need to take from this. Number one, that your attitude determined your reality. And that's basic. If my attitude is good and positive, hopeful and optimistic, the reality that I lead, the reality I live in is beautiful. And if my approach is pessimistic, negative, then guess what? All day long, the reality that I experience is going to be negative and down. And all day long, those thoughts are going to play in my brain over and over and over And the second concept is that these perceptions aren't just perceptions, they shape my life experience. Because again, if I have pervasive negative thoughts, if I'm hopeless and helpless, then everything that I experience is that way, and life itself stinks. And even if I understand life, and even if I understand the value of a mitzvah, even if I understand why I'm here, But it doesn't matter because it's hopeless and I'll never succeed. I'll never make it. I'll never make it in learning. I'll never do anything. I won't account for anything. I won't be anything. And that pervasive sense of there is no hope will destroy me. It'll destroy my simcha sachayim. It'll destroy every experience that I have. And I'll find myself leading a very difficult, very ugly life. And I believe that this concept is fundamental to a person who wants to succeed at life, certainly a person who wants to be happy in this thing we call living. Now, in pop psychology today, there is a mantra that is so counterintuitive, but it's said over and over and over, and I deal with countless therapists, so I'm very familiar with it. And the pop psychology mantra of today is, all feelings are okay. They're feelings. You can't ask a person not to feel that way. You could ask them not to act on it, 
you can ask them not to do, but feelings are feelings. A person not responsible for their feelings. You can't be angry at a person's feelings. As a matter of fact, you have to validate. Their, I understand how you're feeling, but maybe you could be more effective. Uh, your feelings are good, but maybe you could deal with it differently. So I'd like to share with you that this concept is fundamentally wrong and is crumb as a pretzel. Not all thoughts are okay. Not all feelings are okay. I'll give you a gross example. Imagine I wake up in the morning and I say, I want to kill the whole city. I feel I want to murder them all. And you know why? Because I wasn't given the honor due to a person of my stature. I want to strangle every one of them. Well, are my feelings okay? Are they valid? What if I want to burn down my neighbor's house? I feel I want to burn his house down. You know why? Because his house is bigger than mine. It's showier. It's nicer. So I want to burn it down. Is that an okay feeling? Well, if you're not sure whether it is an okay feeling or not, I'd like to share with you that the Evan Ezra explains that Iker Kol HaMitzvah, the main focus of all of the mitzvahs, is L'yashar Alev, to straighten out man's heart. In the Losaseh of Losachmod, do not covet, he explains that there are two different things. There's not coveting and not desire. Not coveting means not desiring with a plan to take it. But the Pasuk uses them interchangeably. In Aserah Sedibras, this Losaseh is repeated twice. And it's used interchangeably. The word Losachmod, don't covet, and Losisave, don't desire. But he explains that Losisave means don't desire. Don't desire your friend's wife. Don't desire your friend's shor. Don't desire your friend's chamor. Don't desire anything of your neighbor. And then he goes on to say, and many people say, are you talking? How could it be? How could the Torah command me not to desire something that's beautiful? My neighbor just showed up with a green jaguar, and it's gorgeous. What do you mean don't want it? Don't desire it. How could I control my thinking? And he says the words that only shotim, only fools say that, because iker kol hamitzvahs, the main purpose of all of the mitzvahs, is liyashar halev, to straighten out man's heart. It's not okay to feel those things. Now, obviously, we're humans and we're growing and we're getting there, but certainly the end game is not to feel that, not to feel jealousy, not to feel desire, not to feel those emotions. Now, it takes an awful lot of time, and it takes a lifetime to perfect the human being, and that's why we were given 120 years. If it took a day or two or a week or a month, that's all the time we'd be given. But we're given 70 years on this planet because it takes an awful lot of time to straighten out our thinking, to make our hearts straight. But that's the end goal. The end goal is to have a good, kind, giving heart that's not jealous that doesn't feel all of the sense of pride and desire to have a heart that's aligned with the Torah's thinking. But not only is that a huge component of a person's growth, as a side benefit, I'll share with you something interesting. And that is that if you straighten out your heart, and in accordance to the amount that you do straighten out your heart, will determine how happy you are in this world. And not just that, your happiness is completely dependent on that. And let me give you just a few examples to point it out. I'm doing well. Things are going great. Everything is in order. And then my neighbor shows up with that green jaguar. I didn't know that there was such a thing called a jag. I didn't know that it came in mint green. I certainly was very fine and well without it. But he shows up with it in the driveway. And now that tape in my brain begins playing. Why does he have it and I don't? Why should he have a jag and I shouldn't? Who is he to have it and I don't? Quite the opposite. He's, he's, is he better than me? Is he above me? I'm better than him. I learn better. I give more stucker. What business is he having the jag and not me? I should have it and not he. I, I should be the owner of it. I should be mine. I should have it and not him. What kind of crumb is this? He, it's, it's, it really is mine. I deserve it. It should be mine. And the Orcha Siddiquim explains that the process goes on and on until I feel in my heart that he's stolen it from me. And if you'd like to see a man without an Olam Hazah, if you'd like to see a man living a tortured existence, find me a man who allows jealousy to reign, and you'll find a man who's suffering 
because everything always bothers me. He has this and she has that and this one has that and this one has that. And I'm never satisfied. I'm never happy. And if you don't work on this, forget the fact that you're going to violate many surim of the Torah. Your life in this world is going to be very, very unpleasant. But it's not just jealousy. Let me share with you another, another interesting example. Many children naturally can read faces. There's a certain adeptness, a certain intuitive sense of being able to determine what that face means. So we all know the person's corners of their mouth lifted up, smile means they're happy, down means they're sad. And most children have no trouble picking up the immediate cue. When mommy makes that face like this, mommy's angry, mommy's happy, mommy's sad. And the child learns very quickly to read the emotions on a person's face. However, not all children learn this instinctively. And some children need a help. Some children need a lot of help. So they have therapists who teach the children how to read emotional cues and how to tell by a person's face what they're feeling. How do they do it? It's really quite simple. They'll show pictures. You see, when the person has the face with the corners going up like this, corners of their mouth going this way, that means a smile. That means they're happy. And the therapist will show the child a few pictures of a person with a smile and the child eventually learns that that facial figure means a person's happy, and it's not that hard to learn. This is what happens when a person looks scared. This is what happens to the face when a person is anxious. And you can teach a child pretty quickly almost all the emotions by a person's face what they're feeling. There's one emotion, however, that's very, very difficult to teach, and that is the emotion of anger. Why is that so hard? We all recognize an angry face. Well, the reason is because if you look at pictures of people who are angry, it looks identical to people who are in pain. Because if you've ever seen an angry face, it's almost identical to a person who has a stomachache or toothache or is in a lot of pain. You ever wonder why that is? Well, I'll share with you why it is. Because anger is a very unpleasant state. to I'm angry. I'm furious. And guess what? I sure ain't happy. And if you find me a person who allows his anger to take control of him, you're finding me a person who has no olam haze, has nothing in this world. Chazal say that, it's like he's dead, it's like a man who's living without life. Because if you allow your temper, but he got me angry, it's his fault. He ruined my simcha. Right, exactly. He ruined your simcha. And now you can't enjoy it. Now your life stinks. But he didn't do it. You did it. No one can force you to get angry. You got angry. He may have been the trigger. He may have been in your mind's eye the cause, but you're the one who allowed yourself to flare up. You're the one who didn't work on yourself. You're the one who didn't spend years and years training yourself to think differently, perceive differently, control what you're working on. And because of that, what he did triggered you, and suddenly your life isn't a life. And if you don't work on anger, your world here will be a very difficult place to be. But it's not just jealousy and not just anger. Do you ever watch a man who's conquered by desire all day long, needing and hungry and hungry and hungry, but he doesn't want it, but I do, but I don't, but I do, but I don't. And he spends hours looking where he shouldn't, doing things he shouldn't, and he's constantly, constantly bombarded, racked with these images that he doesn't want, and he's torn and tortured. And you're watching a man in utter complete misery. And if you don't work on taiva, well, guess what? Your world here will be very ugly. And it's not just men. Women have it in a different way. She had that outfit and that outfit. It tore my eyes out. She showed up with the bugaboo straw. Oh my, it tore out my eyes. Tore out my eye. Wow. Wow, that's a pretty strong expression. You ever hear a woman say, I walked into this house. It was a dream house with a kitchen to die for. A kitchen to die for. Now you know and I know that it's just an expression, but it's a little bit more than just an expression. A kitchen to die for, a dress to die for. And if you don't train yourself to value what's significant in life, to understand what's important, and you don't learn to control yourself, well, guess what? You're going to be very, very unhappy. And what the Eben Ezra is sharing with us is that all of the mitzvahs of the Torah center on this point, to straighten out our thinking, to straighten out our perceptions, 
because the way a person thinks becomes the way they feel, becomes who they are forever. And it's not just a schmooze magnet. It's not just a coy phrase. It's a reality. And the reality is that all of the midos of a person will destroy him in this world unless he learns to take care of them. And you could have everything, wealth and riches, and you could even understand life. And you could even understand why you're here and you could be growing and learning and dominating and doing phenomenally well. But if you don't control your thoughts, your world will be horrible, ugly, and you'll be spending so much time in utter pain, whether it's jealousy or anger or desire or a host of other issues. I need honor. I'm never given enough honor. You know, they step on my toes here and they step on my toes. I'm just not given enough honor. Why don't they honor me? Why don't they give me covered? And if you need covered, you're dead. You're done. Your world here stinks. And again, on a very basic level, what the Ebenezer is sharing with us is that Hashem wants us to be happy. Hashem created us to be happy. When you lead a life in sync with yourself, you're growing, you're accomplishing, you have all the tools to enjoy a beautiful world. But if you don't control your thoughts, you can destroy that beautiful world. That's what the Dordea did. They lived in the ultimate Gan Eden. It doesn't get better than that. With Hashem right there present, you could palp- almost palpably feel Hashem. And they had the greatest Rebbe, and they were so into learning. And life was beautiful for 38 years until they lost hope and then bleak, black, it's ugly, and everything turns. And the key to it all is controlling the thoughts in my brain. Because the thoughts in my brain are not just haphazard. The thoughts in my brain are not just things that are there. They may happen easily. They may happen seemingly naturally, but I can control them. I can stop them or I can program them differently if I do the work. So if in fact I have an issue with anger or jealousy or whatever, I have to train my brain to think differently. But to train my brain, I have to actually go through the process. Much like we discussed in appreciation, the way you learn to appreciate things, you have to talk to yourself about it. You have to discuss it with yourself. You have to say it to yourself. And I'll give you one example just sort of to make it a little bit more clear. Let's assume you have a fellow who's paranoid. He's paranoid. He thinks the world is out to get him. How do you, how do you help him? Well, here's the problem. And if you're going to tell him, fellow, the world is not out to get you, you're not going to get anywhere. Why? He'll bring you case in point. Look, you see the postal guy? You saw, his hand was right on the mace. Why, why was his hand there? He's obviously he's gonna, he's trying to get me, right? The cop, just when they pass him, why did his hand go right by his gun? You know why, you know why. He'll bring you proof after proof after proof all day long how the world is out to get He doesn't say, I'm crazy and therefore I'm paranoid. Uh-uh. His reality is that the world is out to get him and there's no hope for that person until you help him straighten out his thinking. And what he's got to do is he's got to say, no, the world is not out to get me. That policeman had no reason to murder me, no reason to shoot me. That thought in my mind, yes, it went across my mind, but it's distorted, it's wrong. And every time that thought goes across his brain, he's got to say in his mind the exact opposite. No, the world is not out to get me. The policeman is not out to kill me. The postal guy is not out to mace me. No, it's not true. It's not, but I heard it. I feel it. It's not true. And he's got to take control of his brain. And if you've ever done this work, the first time you start doing it, it's so strange. Because I know it's not true. I know the reality. The reality is the world out to get me. No, it's not true. And you have to say the words in your mind, or better yet, say them out loud, even though the first time that you're going to say them, you don't believe them. You have to say it, and you have to say it, and say it, and say it. And if you say it for 10 minutes, and you do that day after day after day, it slowly starts to seep in. Slowly the thoughts start changing. And when you challenge the thoughts often enough, often enough, it starts changing the climate of your thinking. It starts changing the pervasive negative thoughts. And suddenly the perceptions that you have, the reality that you live in is vastly different. And then suddenly you realize the world isn't so bad. Everyone's not out to get me. But it takes this cognitive work. It takes 10 minutes a day, and really it's more than 10 minutes a day. I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Personally, I'm in therapy for 30 minutes a day because my Rebbe, the Rashiva Zatzal, taught us you have to learn Musr every day. But learning Musr means sitting down to a Musr Seder, 
doing the exercises. The exercises mean if it's working on anger or jealousy, whatever it may be, talking to yourself, discussing with yourself, getting control of the thinking in your brain, getting hold of it, and controlling the thought process. And if you're not sure that this is incredibly vital work, all you have to do is discuss with a person who's depressed what their life is like. And depression is a horrific, horrible disease. It sucks the very life out of you. And oftentimes a person will need medical intervention, sometimes even hospitalization or whatever. But it's a horrible state to be in. And I want to go on record. There are many times that a person is depressed that there might very well be a biological component. It might be a chemical imbalance. And medication is often warranted and helpful. But even if it's true, and it's necessary and should be used, if it should be, if it's properly prescribed and it's appropriate, it 100% should be used. And as an aside, you should know, I once sent someone who was depressed, and I sent them for medication. The person didn't want to go. Didn't want to hear it. Didn't want to hear it. And it took Revelius say, that's all to convince the person. The person went to Revelius say, what do I do? What do I do? Revelius say, said, I don't understand. There's medication out there that can make you better. Why in the world wouldn't you use it? What possible reason would you have not to? And again, if a person is depressed and it's medically appropriate for them to use medication, they should because oftentimes it's an important siyua, it's an important aid, and oftentimes a person won't be able to get out of it without the medication. However, regardless of whether they do need medication or don't, they must get control of their thinking. Because all the medication in the world will not help if you have that constant, constant negative thinking in your mind. And more than that, a lot of times all the medication really is needed for is to sort of lift your mood enough that you can do the difficult cognitive work. Oftentimes it takes a therapist to help walk a person through. But I want to share with you quite clearly how much this affects a person. And I think it's a tremendous lesson whether you have an issue of depression yourself or know somebody, or even it has no connection whatsoever, the concepts and its applications to life situations in general is huge. So let's discuss depression for a minute. There are three P's in depression. I'm not sure who spelled the word depression, but there are three P's in it. The first P in depression is pervasive. You see, the thinking of a depressed person is pervasively negative. What that means is, imagine I failed a test. Okay, I'm a high school student, and I failed a test. Most high school students, when they fail a test, say, I failed a test. Okay. A person who has depressed thinking has a sense of everything now is bad. It means everything I do is no good. Everything in my world is bad. This is not an isolated event. This is not one instance. This is reflective of a global reality. The pervasiveness of my negative thinking spreads to everything. This test that I failed is just one indicator of how much bad has happened, is going to happen, will continue to happen because everything is bad. It goes from the test to global. The thinking is pervasive. And no kidding, you think I failed this test and every test and everything's going to be bad. Guess what? Likely you're going to be depressed. The second hallmark of depressed thinking is it's personal. Meaning to say, I failed the test, it's a din in me. I am a failure. I am a loser. I'm not smart enough. I'm not good enough. It's not just that I failed a test and maybe it was fair or not fair. Maybe I did study enough or didn't study enough. No. It's reflective of a lack in me. I am a failure. The first P is pervasive. The thought from this local item goes out to everything else. The second is personal, it's reflective of me. And it's the third that's even more destructive, it's permanent. I fail this test means it can never be undone. I can never make up for it. I can never change. It's bleak, it's black, it's ugly, and it will be that way forever. And if you've ever discussed life with a depressed person, the sense of hopelessness, the sense of the way it is now, it will always be, is astonishingly strong. And guess what? It's not true. It's not true. And all you have to do is compare your thinking 
to a jury of your peers. Ask another high school student, or if you're a middle-aged woman, ask another woman, would she think about it that way? And all you have to do really to undo the depressed thinking is to recognize its hallmarks and recognize its characters, and then all you got to do is train yourself to think otherwise. You have to deprogram yourself. So again, you failed the test. Number one, I failed this test. doesn't mean I'm going to fail every other test. And it doesn't mean everything else in my life is going to go bad. And it doesn't mean I'm going to get hit by a car. It doesn't mean I'm going to get cancer. It doesn't mean anything other than I failed a test. Okay, it is a test. I wish I didn't fail it. I did. But it's localized to this event. It's not pervasive to everything else in my life. Number two, it's not necessarily personal. Okay, I didn't study. It doesn't mean I'm stupid. It doesn't mean I can't be a student. It doesn't mean I'm a loser. It doesn't mean I can't make it. It means I didn't study enough or maybe I did study enough. Maybe I'm not well suited for this particular subject. Maybe it's more difficult, whatever it may be, but it doesn't reflect on me as being a worthless loser. And number three, it's not permanent. Many other tests, many other situations. And maybe I'm not good at biology, but I'm very good at math. Maybe I'm not good at school, but I'll be very good as a businessman. And maybe who knows what. But you see what you have to do is you have to catch your thinking and you have to deprogram yourself and you have to do the actual work. The actual work is to sit there 10 minutes minimum. Really, it's a lot better, 20 minutes or a half hour. And then you have to think the positive thoughts, the opposite of your negative thinking, and you have to train yourself. I think what this Chazal shares with us is a tremendous yesod. It didn't get better than the Dordea. There was never a generation that had it better. They had such spiritual heights. They heard Anokhi Hashem Alekecha. They heard Hashem Himself speak. Moshe Rabbeinu was a teacher. Aaron Akoni was there. They lived in the Midbar amongst miracles. Life was beautiful. Every worry was taken care of. The Anonim protected them. They were guarded against animals. They were guarded against any attacker. They had the greatest life imaginable until, boom, they lost hope. And it wasn't just then that they lost hope. Then the whole world came crashing in on them. The world became ugly. It became a prison cell. Alechem Akilokel is ugly, disgusting bread. And everything that was beautiful became the opposite. If a person wants to be happy in life, the first thing you have to make sure is that you're leading a life with purpose. You're leading a life the way your Creator intended you to. And if you're not growing, and if you're not accomplishing, there's an inner emptiness within you. That fellow who went around college campuses asked, why bring a child into the world? Why do it to an innocent child? The reason why people couldn't answer him was because they didn't understand life. But if you understand life and you're growing, life is beautiful. There's a happiness within you. It's a beautiful life we lead. Oh, yes, there are many bruises and many issues, but I enjoy life and there's a happiness. And the first thing a person has to have, they want to lead a successful and also a happy life, is they have to have a very good understanding of why they're here and have to be growing. I and I have to be in sync I and I have to be in harmony. But I think the Kiddush of the Dordea is they were there. They were right there a lot more than you and I. And I think what it shows us is that a person could be leading a life of tremendous growth, leading a life of meaning, and yet life stinks. But why? Look, you're accomplishing, you're growing, you're learning, look what you're doing. Yeah, but ugh. Why? Because my perceptions control my reality. The way I perceive the world shapes the way I think and shapes the way I feel. Much like if I give you that box and you open it and you see 10 diamonds, you're elated, you're happy. Or if you see it as a bluff, as a fake, as cubic zirconium, you feel, look, he's trying to fool me also. It's not the reality, it's your perception of the reality. And this concept cuts across every experience you'll have at life. The way you feel about your spouse. My wife, my, ah, she's nothing. She's, there are so many women who are prettier and better, and she doesn't cook well, and she, ah, she stinks. And it's true. It's true that you perceive it that way. The question is, what's causing your perceptions? And more than that, what can you do about it? And the first thing a person has to do in that situation is put their thinking in line and recognize how much they owe their spouse. And recognize how much their spouse does for them. Recognize how good their spouse is for them, designed by their creator as the ideal match. 
but you got to control your thinking. And if you don't control your thinking, your wife is going to stink, your house is going to stink, the neighborhood you live in is going to stink. And even if you don't suffer from that, you'll suffer from every imaginable torture because of the midos, the natural character traits that well up. I'm furious! I'm angry! And a person who's angry doesn't have a life. That's not joyful. That's not happiness. The reasons why kids can't distinguish between the face that's in pain and the face that's angry is because an angry person is in pain. And he's not a happy person. And if you don't learn to control your thinking, well, guess what? Of course you're going to get angry. This guy did that, and this guy did that, and that one did this. How could a person not get angry? If you viewed the world as I did, you'd be furious too. And that's exactly the problem. The problem is the way you view the world. But I can't control my thinking. But the evidence is saying is not only can you control your thinking, that's the main focus of all of the mitzvahs. The main focus of all of the mitzvahs is for us to change, to change the essence of me. I am not this physical part. I'm the guy inside. I'm the one who tells the arms and legs to move. And the way I think is my reality. The way I think shapes who I am. And the focus of all of the mitzvahs, the ikar of all the mitzvahs, is liyashir leva adam, to teach a person to think straight. How do I do it? How can I control thoughts in my brain? And explains the evidence of you do the work. You have to do the work of controlling your brain. Thoughts will flash across your mind. But that doesn't mean you have to allow them. And it doesn't mean you have to allow them to repeat. And it doesn't mean you have to allow them to repeat again and again and again. And by the way, watch a person who gets angry. Invariably, what happens? Someone said something. Okay, my boss ranked me out. He called me this and that, lazy, whatever it may be. He gave me a real tongue lashing. Okay. At that moment, I'm not that angry. I'm hurt, a little embarrassed. But I get in my car and I start driving home. And like a tape playing over and over in my brain, you're a lazy bum, you're not good for anything. How dare you say that? Why can't you say that about me? Why can't you say about anybody else? And over and over, those words are going to play. And over and over, I'm going to answer back, he's wrong, and it's wrong. And I'm going to have that discourse in my brain. If you were listening to a, a recording of what's going on in your brain, you're getting heated and heated and more heated and more heated. And don't say you can't control that. Oh, yes, if you don't control it, it will continue to get more heated and more heated. And by the time you get home, you're going to be a volcano ready to explode, and you're going to punch your front door open because you're furious. But you didn't start furious. And learning to control your thinking means learning to, A, recognize my thoughts, to understand that my thoughts greatly shape the way I feel, the way I experience life, and to learn to recognize what's straight and what's twisted. We're talking about the purpose of life. We're talking about leading a life of meaning and purpose. We're talking about leading a life that's happy. A jealous person isn't happy. A person living, living with desire, constantly consuming them, isn't happy. And a person who's depressed isn't happy. And the solution to all of them is one. I have to gain control. I have to do the exercises and I have to sit down and make a list of my positives, my negatives. And if that's my issue, let's assume for a minute, arrogance is my issue. I think I'm God's gift to the world. I don't wish I, I wish I wasn't, but I think I'm God's gift to humanity. Thank you very much. I wish listen, I, I didn't answer it, but if you were as talented as I was, huh? You'd also okay. But what am I gonna do? I feel that way. How, how could I how could I get that feeling out of my heart? And it's a major series you'll get a chance to listen to, hopefully, that deals with exactly that six shurim on attaining a perfect balanced sense of image. Not being a sense of destroyed worthless and not being arrogant, a healthy self-esteem. But most of the work is in the cognitive realm. Most of the work is taking stock of my strengths and my weaknesses. What I do that's right and the mistakes that I make. And most of the work is getting a balanced reality. And it's true about everything. It's true about everything that we do. Our feelings begin from thoughts, from perceptions, and you can control them, but you have to do the work. This series in general deals with this at length, but this one in particular is pervasive because that is one of the great keys in life. 
Look at a depressed person and you'll see a person who has everything. He could have wealth. He could have a beautiful marriage even. Beautiful children. Everything's great. But life stinks. Why? Because he has thought processes that are twisted, that are wrong. They're pervasive, they're personal, and they're permanent. And he's got to learn to change them. He's got to learn to catch them. Hashem created us and gave us this opportunity to grow, to accomplish. Hashem put us in a beautiful world and Hashem wants us to be happy. But you have to lead life the way your Creator wanted you to. And you have to use the systems the way Hashem intended for us. When you use the Torah as you're supposed to, when you lead a life of purpose and meaning, and you use the Torah system to grow, to accomplish, you lead a beautiful, meaningful life, and you lead a life that's filled with happiness, filled with joy. You lead a life as your Creator intended you to lead it.